Isolation is a fundamental concept in computer science. Software workloads are isolated from each other in order to keep resource access cleanly separated. When programs are properly isolated, it is easier for the programmer to reason about the memory safety of that program. When a program is not properly isolated, it can lead to problems such as security flaws where one program can access the information of another, and poor isolation can also lead to garbage collection problems or running out of disk space. Isolation takes many forms, including individual processes, containers, and virtual machines. Techniques for isolation evolve over time, and a more recent technology that can assist with isolation is WebAssembly, which is an execution format that can run a variety of languages which compile down into the WebAssembly binary format. For previous episodes about WebAssembly, you can listen to many of the shows in our archives. Tyler McMullen is the CTO at Fastly, which is a cloud provider that focuses on edge computing systems such as content delivery networking. Tyler has written and spoken about WebAssembly in detail. He's been on the show previously to talk a bit about WebAssembly, and he joins the show for another episode about computational isolation and how WebAssembly presents new efficiencies for engineers that are looking to isolate their workloads. We talk about a broad range of topics, including WebAssembly. Full disclosure, Fastly, where Tyler works, is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Tyler McMullen, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Today we're going to talk about isolation and WebAssembly isolation specifically, but let's start with just that computer science fundamental term. What does the term isolation mean? So I guess the way that I think about this is that isolation can actually mean a whole bunch of different things. And when you break down like the different parts of computer science, that actually like breaks out into even more different variations for what it can mean. So, you know, if you've seen my, uh, like the couple talks I've given about this, like, you know, for instance, in um, like control theory, there's a concept of isolation. That's obviously not what we typically mean when we're talking about it, when it, as it refers to say like web applications and so on. So to me, it kind of like fundamentally breaks down into like two primary different ones. One of them is uh, resource isolation. And so when we talk about say like containers, Typically, what we're talking about is actually this concept of resource isolation, meaning that you're running some sort of code and the resources that it has available to it, whether that be memory or CPU or disk or really like access to anything, you know, that part can be controlled and uh, and we can know exactly what it's able to access. That's, I think, the primary thing that people are talking about when they talk about isolation. Yeah. What are some mechanisms by which we can get isolation in our modern software? So like kind of the most fundamental one, the one that people accomplishes this for most people, most of the time, they probably don't even think about is the entire concept of a process, right? Like it's so fundamental to the way that we do computing now that like it, it seems like it's almost just an inbuilt concept, but it's, it's not like it hasn't always been there. This entire concept comes from like the the multi-processing days when we were trying to do time sharing across different uh, across you know mainframes and such. So the concept of a process is essentially a a non-cooperative multitasking that operating systems do for you. So you know a, what a process effectively is is a region of memory. It's a virtual memory block and some metadata that lives in the kernel 
that will uh, that essentially isolates it from other processes and isolates its memory from the processes, uh, the the memory of other processes on the system. That's probably the most fundamental one. And then, like as we as we get a little bit more modern, like the on the opposite end of the spectrum, you get virtual machines, right? And what is different about these is that they're essentially attempting to isolate a different set of resources, right? So virtual machines take a a very different approach to attempting to isolate software, whereas processes are like a kernel level, you know, I'm I'm keeping this virtual memory separate from this other virtual memory. Um, Virtual machines are, are kind of a, they're really trying to make it like so that you are emulating an entirely new computer effectively is what's happening there. And then on the like the far other other end of the spectrum, you have virtual machines in the different sense. So this is like virtual machine, like the first one I'm referring to there is like, you know, something like VMware. And then we use virtual machines in a different way, which is when we're talking about things like the JVM, right? The Java virtual machine is a different type of virtual machine. And so that's attempting to do isolation, not necessarily in the form of a process, but in the form of uh, emulating a, a different type of processor. So really, it's a really hard thing to explain now that I think about it, as I'm trying to work through how to explain all these different forms of isolation. Like we use this term in so many different ways to mean so many different things. But fundamentally, what it really comes down to is that like, you know, you have multiple different programs running on some set of hardware and you want to keep them separate from each other is effectively what we're talking about. One reason we want to keep them separate from each other is that security issues can result from failures in isolation. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that? Well, so I think that comes up from several different places. One of them, like kind of the most obvious one, is that if if you're running code that you don't trust, that doesn't come from a trusted source, right? Um, And you don't have a way to isolate that, to keep it separate from the other things that are that are running on the machine or even from the system that is running that code itself, that, that can obviously be like a really large problem, right? Like, you know, that, that code can break out of whatever sandbox it's in. If it, if it can break out of whatever sandbox it's in, it can really cause like some serious devastation there. The other way that this comes up is code that you do trust that has a bug in it. It has like some flaw in it. Right. And so even in the case where you do trust the code, like, if someone does find a way to um, to penetrate that code, uh, it could actually like if if you don't have isolation in place for that system, that could mean that the attacker could actually break into other parts of your system as well. So like e- even in the case where you do trust the code, like isolation is a pretty important concept. You've touched on the importance of isolation in the context of multi-tenancy. So multi-tenancy can let us run two workloads on the same host. Maybe we're talking about, I mean, I guess we could say multi-tenancy in the context of two processes running on the same host, but I think generally we're talking about multiple virtual machines or multiple containers. These are multiple things that sort of look like an operating environment running on the same host. What's the relationship between multi-tenancy and isolation? Yeah. So I think multi-tenancy is, in fact, just a form of isolation. And in this case, usually what people typically are talking about when uh, when you refer to multi-tenancy is it's not just about a, a process or anything like that. It's really about 
making a user feel as if an entire system is just them running on it. Um, and I think that goes beyond a process. It also goes back to like, you know, data layers and things like that. So, I mean, for instance, like one of the, one of the very earliest things that we had to do at Fastly is that we, we took Varnish, right? Like, so Varnish is a, a big open source proxy, reverse proxy for HTTP. And so the way that Varnish was originally designed was not as a multi-tenant system, right? So it was designed such that like it was, it was expected that you were running this thing on your own hardware in your own data center. And with that came a bunch of decisions. So for instance, um, it was simple things like, you know, you know, only one configuration could be loaded at a time, right? So that's obviously like, you know, you need to have multiple different configurations loaded um, if you're going to be a multi-tenant system. But it also comes down to like, you know, some different decisions that you make in, soft, in the software engineering itself. So error handling, I think, is an interesting aspect of this. So for instance, um, in like the original version of Varnish, if you had uh, certain types of errors in your configuration, this would result in an, an assert being thrown inside of the inside of the server. So the entire server would crash. Which, if it's just your server, that that might be an acceptable thing to do. However, hmm. if you're a multi-tenant system, then a configuration having an error. Um, resulting in the entire server crashing would be like a pretty pretty big problem, right? So really multi-tenancy is, is about making it feel as if everyone is entirely separate when in fact you are all running on exactly the same hardware and software for that matter. Can you describe the isolation properties of virtual machines and containers? When we're talking about virtual machines versus containers. The way I think about this is that they are effectively virtualizing two di- at, at two different layers of the stack, right? So virtual machine is trying to make it feel as if you have ent- like your entirely own set of hardware, right? So you can virtualize a network card. You can virtualize like multiple different processors, like the entire concept of vCPUs, for instance. Right. So that's at like a hardware layer is that it's attempting to do this. And the way that's implemented ends up being like via a bunch of a bunch of special like operations that have been added. Like, and this is like relatively, relatively new development, but like new operations that have been added to modern processors to make this to make this fast. Um, When we're talking about containers, though, um, that's actually at like the kernel layer of your operating system. So containers are actually effectively just a process. That's like the the like crazy secret of containers is that containers are really just a process. So along with that process comes uh, a set of restrictions. So in, in the Linux world, uh, a lot of this looks like namespaces, right? So a process can be associated with a namespace and that namespace can be associated with like certain resources on the system, um, whether that's a, you know, certain sections of the file system or, you know, along with like hardware layer things like uh, like network cards and so on. And so they're, they're effectively what a container is trying to do is make it seem as if you are running in your own operating system, whereas a virtual machine is trying to emulate the fact that you are running on, on your own hardware entirely. What are the shortcomings of these modern isolation techniques for multi-tenant systems? So if we're talking about containers or virtual machines, you work at a cloud provider, essentially, Fastly's mm-hmm. CDN. What are the ways in which these virtual machines and containers are are insufficient for a company that's doing multi-tenancy at scale? Yeah. So 
depending on like the way your company works and the way the cloud provider works, some of the existing some of the existing technologies for this are actually perfectly sufficient. You know, if if what you're trying to do is make uh, is to give your customers the experience of like you know having their entirely own virtual private server type of setup, like you know a virtual machine actually makes a lot of sense for that. I think it's when you get down to like the like the serverless paradigm that things start to break down a little bit, because at that point it's not just about like oh I want to isolate my customers from each other, it's also about you want to make your customers able to isolate their users from from each other as well, right? And so, in the case of Fastly, this ends up manifesting in the form of I really would like to make it so that every individual request that comes through our system is isolated from each other. Um, not just every customer of ours, but every customer of theirs is isolated from each other as well, um, which is like a, a subtle but like impactful difference. And so in our case, what that actually ends up looking like is, you know, if we wanted to do this using existing software, it would look like, well, I need to spin off a container for every request that comes into our system. You know, our systems are doing tens of thousands of requests per second. And that's just, that's just fundamentally not not a thing that is possible, right? Um, you know, we've gotten containers down to the point where like you can start them really quickly. You know, sometimes it's, you know, down to like the single single digit millisecond level, which is really impressive. Like some of the work that Amazon and others have done on this over the last few years has been like really impressive. But when you consider that uh, a request flowing through a Fastly system is typically, is typically uh, processed in under one millisecond, you can see how that kind of falls apart, right? And so um, that's that's kind of how we've ended up on, um, on on trying to find a different way to do to do this isolation. Mm. So if I understand the problem correctly, Fastly is a CDN. It needs to have very fast response times, and the container spin-up time might be in some ways too expensive. It takes too long it to spin up a container for an individual request in a way that satisfies your fast name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More or less, that's, re- that's really how it works. That's, that's, that's the issue that we're trying to address. Okay. So let's go a little bit deeper on that. Sure. Why are there trade-offs between speed and isolation? Ah, that's a great question. The reason that there's a trade-off between speed and isolation really comes down to um, the fact that isolation is always going to end up requiring more work, right? So there's, and there's a bunch of different ways that you can do this. So in the case of, let's say, a container of some kind, the additional work comes in the form of having to call into the kernel, set up a new process, set up all the requirements for it. And then at that point, actually, like once you have all that all set up, like it's kind of, um, it has, in the case of a container, it's moved most of the work to the beginning, right? And so it's added a bunch of processing and like, you know, work to like the creation of the process, right? In the case of a virtual virtual machine, it's similar, um, except that then there's also additional overhead just based on virtualizing so much of the hardware. But there are other ways that you can go about this. Um, so in our case, like one of the ways that we're working on this is to actually um, add a lot of the isolation work into the compiler, so the code that the compiler produces is fundamentally more, more amenable to isolation. Uh, however, that, of course, does then eventually 
end up adding additional overhead to the execution of that code. So it always ends up being some set of trade-offs because really like what you're trying to do is to supervise the code that is running. And so you can either do that in like a systemsy way in the form of containers and processes and so on, or you can do it um, in a way that actually involves like instrumenting the code in such, uh, instrumenting the native code that the compiler has generated such that it's even more amenable to this. But either one of them adds overhead in one form or another. Just to go a little bit deeper on on that idea, can you talk more about how compilation or interpretability can lead to better isolation, better speed? Why does compilation and, and uh, interpretation fit into this conversation about isolation? Yeah, no, this is like a really fun part, and that's what I spent the last like two and a half years. Of- so. Okay, so if you consider like, you know, virtual machines and containers and so on, one of the assumptions that they have is that you're going to provide them um, some native code that is already compiled. Um, You like you as a container have no way of knowing what's in that code. You have to assume that it could contain any set of operations in any particular order that are trying to do every single thing possible to break out, right? And so the type, the way, the ways in which you need to be able to provide the isolation there have to be like significantly more heavyweight, right? Uh, Because you have no guarantees about what that code is going to try to do. So when you look at like, you know, interpretation or, um, or like sandbox compilation, we change that model a little bit. So interpretation is kind of the easier example of this. Uh, if I, if I write code that interprets some other code, I can guarantee what exactly that code is going to be able to do because I've written the interpreter. Like, you know, then they can only do whatever the interpreter is allowed to do. And the compilation side of it is actually really similar. So if I'm doing the compiling to native code, I get to say, like, what this, like, what code I will actually generate. So for instance, if we're worried about, you know, a user uploading code that attempts to make some sort of syscall into the kernel, um, and I don't want that, I don't want to let them do that. Let's say, so if I'm in control of the compiler, what I can do is say, okay, well, you know, I'm considering this function to be entirely off limits. Great. Now, you know, I just won't generate the code that calls that function. Easy enough, right? But in the case of again, like containers or something like that, that that code might be attempting to call whatever whatever it wants. Um, And so you have to put other sorts of safeguards in place to prevent it from doing so. Okay, great. Let's begin to talk about WebAssembly. How does WebAssembly isolate workloads? So there's a couple primary different ways that WebAssembly isolates workloads. I like to think of them as like one is control flow. It's a control flow side of things. And the other one is the, uh, the memory side of things. So in WebAssembly, like any memory access is expected to be bounds checked. The amount of memory that you have and the amount of memory that you're allowed to access are are very explicit in WebAssembly. So essentially, if you're running a bunch of WebAssembly programs and one of them tries to access memory that is out of bounds, according to the WebAssembly spec, that is guaranteed to be caught, which takes care of a lot of of vulnerabilities that, that native code systems typically run into. It also potentially adds quite a bit of overhead, but we have some tricks for dealing with that. The other one is in the form of control flow. So this looks like this, this is actually one of the more interesting parts of WebAssembly. So unlike native code um, or in like the typical way that processes are handled, WebAssembly separates the code from the data 
entirely. So if you think about the way that a process works, um, a process has a bunch of virtual memory. And the way that a process starts is that the kernel allocates it some virtual memory, it gives it its space, and then loads the binary code into that virtual memory and then tells the processor to jump to a particular location in there, right? And so what that ends up meaning is that the code is able to access itself ultimately, right? And so like this entire concept ends up leading to like a wide variety of different uh, vulnerabilities in, in modern systems. WebAssembly attempts to sidestep that entirely by making it impossible for the code to refer to itself. So any memory accesses you're making in WebAssembly actually refer to some like a different set of memory. It refers to this concept called linear memory, which is considered to be entirely separate from the code, which ends up meaning that like, for instance, jumping to, you know, one of the big ways that like uh, some of the big ways that like um, that native code tends to go wrong is that you end up jumping to arbitrary locations within memory, which ends up letting you do all sorts of shenanigans. And so WebAssembly entirely sidesteps that by basically going like, nope, you can only you can only call functions that are actually functions, and you can only jump to locations that have been explicitly set aside as places that you're allowed to jump to. Um, likewise, like the code cannot read itself and cannot modify itself in any way. Um, so it. It does a bunch of things in order to prevent the types of vulnerabilities that we see in like modern native software. Mm. Yeah. So you're talking about code that can read itself or can look at itself. I think that term is called reflection, or at least in, in the Java world, it's called reflection. What kinds of issues result from uh, a program being able to observe itself? Oh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, so reflection is is, is part of it. It's interesting that it's it's like a slightly different concept because reflection when you're talking about something in like the Java world um, is referring to like the ability to modify or the ability to observe the like the AST, the like the, the syntax of, of the program that you're executing. Whereas in this case, what we're talking about is like the actual native code, right? Like, so we're talking oh, about like, oh. you know, like assembly operations, right? Right, um, right. Similar, right. similar though. It's like it's and, and can actually lead to similar vulnerabilities as well. But so... I guess just just as like one example, one of the you know big and like you know scarier vulnerabilities that that like C code, for instance, typically has um, or can typically be um, be attacked with is something refer that's referred to as return oriented programming. And so, what this refers to is essentially you you set up the stack of the program such that you return to locations that are not actually call sites. So this is, this is a weird concept, but essentially what, what this lets you do is to say, I'm actually going to return, I'm going to like, when I hit the return of a function, I'm actually going to go back to a place, I'm going to go to a place in the program that I didn't actually call it from. And so what this means is that I could actually use this to jump to a location in a different function that's in the middle of the function, for instance. And if you can set up a chain of these, what it can let you do is essentially like have a bunch of these different widgets that do different small operations and you can chain them together to accomplish larger attacks against the system. It's a really hard concept to explain, but like, but all of these sorts of attacks are actually completely mitigated by WebAssembly because, because you can't jump to specific locations. You can't jump to arbitrary locations within a WebAssembly program everything has a very structured control flow to it. There's no concepts of jumps, for instance. Yeah. 
Likewise, things like function pointers, which are also often abused, right? Um, you know, in C, in native code, a function is really just a location in memory. In WebAssembly, a function is a very well understood concept. Uh, functions have an index, and you can't just jump to an arbitrary location and pretend that it's a function. Yeah. This way of operating in the WebAssembly runtime. We, I mean, we did a full show on you and I. Uh, the last time we spoke was was mostly about the WebAssembly runtime. So, in this this new WebAssembly runtime, are there any engineering problems that are uh, kind of uns like unsolved engineering problems? Like, is there anything if we if we want to get these the safety guarantees that we're talking about? Is there anything that's that's unsolved in terms of uh, trying to achieve them? Yeah, yeah. For certain. I think probably the, the biggest unsolved thing that, that we're still working on right now is uh, making it safe for WebAssembly to interact with the outside world. So the one, so essentially what I'm, what I'm describing here is uh, if you want to say like run a WebAssembly program either in your browser or on a server somewhere at the moment, and especially even earlier than now, there wasn't really a standard way to do that. And so what that ended up meaning was that everyone was kind of inventing their own, their own way, right? So for instance, like in the browser, if you wanted to, you know, call out and uh, I don't know, like write something to the console, let's say, right? There wasn't any built-in way to do that in WebAssembly. And there wasn't any standard way to do that in WebAssembly, which means that if you're actually having to write all of those imported calls for each individual program, in addition to being a bunch of work, it guarantees it's going to have security flaws in it as well. So one of the things that we've been working on, along with Mozilla and, and, and several other um, companies, has been this concept of WASI, uh, the WebAssembly System Interface. So this is kind of the first attempt at creating like a standard set of modules that use a capabilities-based security uh, method in order to kind of make a, like, like a standard interface, essentially, to let programs interact with the outside world. So, so initially, what that ends up looking like is, is a lot like, you know, you know, how do I print something to the console or, or the terminal for that matter? And uh, how, do I, uh, how do I listen on a network socket? How do I, you know, write to a network socket? How do I make HTTP requests and so on? But we can kind of imagine a future where we can describe lots more uh, concepts with, with something like WASI. So maybe that's uh, in the form of, uh, how do I interact with a hardware security module, for instance? Well, you know, those things have like, you know, pretty, uh, pretty well-known interfaces. We could actually build a standard interface for them into WASI, meaning that if you wanted to run some code that interacted with that in the browser, we could let you do that. If you wanted to run that code as well on a server, um, it could work just the same. So what we're trying to do there is kind of wrap up the two concepts of like, how do I safely interact with the outside world uh, with, how do I interact with the outside world such that it works across different platforms? Um, trying to wrap those two things up into, into a simple, single project. Do WebAssembly modules, like if you're going to create a WebAssembly module or compile down into WebAssembly, are there, are there tighter constraints around how much memory you're using or, or where you are laying out this program in memory? Like if we're talking about that relative to containers? Do, are you more constrained in, ter in terms of how your program actually gets laid out? So a little bit. So WebAssembly at the moment, I, I think where you're going with this, and I, I think this is probably the, the biggest constraint, WebAssembly programs currently only really have the concept of 32 bits of memory. 
So uh, pointers are 32 bits. And what that ends up meaning is that the maximum amount of memory that you can use for one of these programs is about four gigabytes. That's probably the biggest restriction at the moment. And of course, if you're if you're trying to do anything that, you know, that is doing, say, like a computed go to, uh, if you're familiar with like the, the concept of a computed go to in C or assembly language, you know, that that's clearly not going to work in WebAssembly either. Um, so there are some restrictions, but the restrictions that exist like are actually not nearly as bad as one would expect, you know, despite the fact that WebAssembly gives you those concepts like structured control flow and linear memory and so on. It turns out that we can, you know, using those actually still emulate the vast majority of the types of programs that people want to, um, that people want to execute. Can you tell, just tell me more about how WebAssembly memory management works? Sure. So WebAssembly memory is again, like this concept of linear memory. That is a different thing than virtual memory uh, because linear memory doesn't have holes in it, uh, which is like kind of a, a big thing in virtual memory. So if you're familiar with virtual memory, like it's, you know, you have 64 bits, you have a 64 bit like virtual memory space. Uh, it's actually, you know, 48 bits on, on most modern hardware, but, but that aside. So you have the 64 bits of space and that virtual memory, only some of it, only a very small percentage of it at any time is actually mapped to physical memory, right? Um, and so that leads to like interesting problems where, you know, you can get seg faults and so on. So WebAssembly takes a very different approach with this linear memory. So WebAssembly memory starts at zero and grows upward. It only ever grows upward. You can't have holes in it. And the primary reason for that is for like making bounds checking cheaper. But, but regardless, it actually like it, it makes the entire concept a lot more simple as well. So it starts at zero and um, it's organized into pages. Pages in WebAssembly are 64 kilobytes large. If you want to grow the memory, there is an explicit grow memory operation that happens in WebAssembly. And so you grow that, you can grow it one page at a time, you grow it more, um, and it can go all the way up to about four gigabytes. So the way, interestingly though, like for, for typical programmers, the, the way that you interact with this is actually no different, though, than the way that you would interact with memory in any other like language, right? So if you're if you're writing in C, for instance, like you would still just call malloc, and the WebAssembly runtime that you're using has a way of emulating, or not even just emulating, but implementing malloc to use linear memory. So, for instance, the way that this works inside of Lucid uh, along with Wasi is that if you want to uh, you know, allocate some memory, you you just call malloc. Malloc actually runs inside of the sandbox. Um, and malloc goes, okay, do I have enough memory in order to uh, give, give this allocation to the user? If I don't, what I will do is call the special WebAssembly grow memory function. And in that case, that grow memory function pops out, uh, pops out of the sandbox back to the host, which will then go, okay, well, you know, is this user allowed to use more memory? If they are, then great. Let me just give them another 64 kilobyte page. If they're not, then it lets us uh, make the decision to say no or, or terminate the sandbox entirely. So what's neat about WebAssembly's memory management model is that it, it gives you very granular control over it. It lets you have you know a lot of control over exactly like what the users are allowed to do. When you're thinking about this from the perspective of a cloud provider, so in the container world, uh, when I talk to people at cloud providers and they're talking about scheduling containers onto big clusters of machines. They just think of their cluster of machines as uh, a bunch of places where they can just throw these different containers, and uh, you know, and then these containers will be you know subject to the kind of isolation 
flaws that you mentioned earlier. In the WebAssembly world, I'm imagining just a, a series of uh, linear memory mm. situations. I guess you could you could kind of have a, you could do like round robin to uh, get your you know as your your users are scheduling WebAssembly programs, you could uh, you could have some interesting bin packing questions. <laughs> Uh, across your different linear memory segments. But I guess I, I'm just wondering, from the point of view of a cloud provider, when you start scheduling WebAssembly workloads onto these machines in a linear fashion, what kind of isolation benefits do you get? Like if if I schedule if I'm a cloud provider and I and I do and I schedule my workloads into WebAssembly modules instead of containers, what am I getting out of that? Yeah. So again, I think a lot of this, a lot of what makes this better is, is the granular nature of it. You know, again, a container, you're kind of trying to emulate like this, this whole idea of like having your own operating system that you're running inside of. And again, a container is really just a process, right? And so you have like a very clear way to, you know, to execute that process, right? So you, you know, you can move a process onto a machine and that is, that's about it. Like, and then you can do the scheduling within that machine. WebAssembly gives you a like much, much more granular control over how this works. So, you know, one way we might do it is to say like, all right, well, I have a bunch of processes running on one machine that are all executing these WebAssembly modules, right? Um, and so within each one of those processes, I might have a set of threads, which are also allocated to executing these WebAssembly modules, right? So I might have, you know, 16 threads in this process, 16 threads in another process, and I know that I need to execute this WebAssembly module. So I could actually farm it off to any one of these, and I could assign it to any individual thread in there. Likewise, though, um, given that we control the compilation of, of these, like the native compilation of these WebAssembly modules, what we can actually do is make it so scheduling is a much less hard problem for us because we can say like, okay, well, at this point in the program, I can actually inject some code that says, hey, you know, if you're still running at this point, you know, maybe we should let someone else run on this thread. So this is like a cooperative uh, multi-threading setup. So we can actually enforce cooperative multi-threading into this where we can essentially go like, okay, like this WebAssembly module runs for a while and then it's, it's going to do some IO work. So it's going to pop off of the thread and let someone else use it for a while. So we get this like very granular, like down to like, you know, individual milliseconds and even less ability to control what is running and where it is running and what it has access to. That's, I think probably for me, like the biggest difference there, but, but ultimately like, you know, containers or virtual machines or WebAssembly modules, like they're all really trying to accomplish the same thing here. They're all trying to be scheduled to be as efficient as possible while also keeping them as isolated as possible. How fast is the WebAssembly stack improving? And and, and the reason I ask that question is because I, I just remember this blog post I saw from, I think it was from Till Schneiderite and, uh, and Lynn Clark, where they mapped out the state of WebAssembly, and there was like 50 different regions in the WebAssembly stack, <laughs> and they all had like variable states of maturity. Sure. So I'm just, I'm just wondering how, how it's maturing. 
Yeah, it's a great question. First, first of all, I love Till and Lynn. They're like great human beings and excellent engineers as well. So first of all, shout out to Till and Lynn. The, okay, so regarding like the maturity of the, the whole WebAssembly ecosystem for that matter, man, it is in, like the speed with which it is improving is actually kind of terrifying to me. So we've been running a bunch of benchmarks and such lately against like Lucid and other, uh, and other compilers and runtimes. And like for a lot of the benchmarks, we are... We are within striking distance of of native speed, which is for for how young CraneLift and and Lucid and Wasm Time and all of these these projects that are working together, for as young as they are, like that's to me super impressive. Like I'm I'm really pleased with how well that has gone. On the other side of things, you have like the languages themselves that are compiling to WebAssembly, and that one that one is an interesting mixed bag. Like we have. We have some that are improving really rapidly and have gotten to like production quality uh, within a shockingly short amount of time. So I think that Rust um, and C and C++ are like some great examples of this. Uh, Rust in particular is like, you know, the WebAssembly code it produces is efficient and it works, right? Which has been pretty awesome to use. But there's still so much work to do there. Um, and so much of it actually comes down to the WebAssembly standard itself um, and how quickly we can get new features standardized that allow new languages to use it. You know, what, uh, uh, the big one, the big one in the future for this is uh, built-in garbage collection in WebAssembly. So if you think about, you know, the, A, the types of languages that, you know, people typically want to run inside of a browser, and B, the fact that browsers already have garbage collection built into them. One, one thing that is intended to be built into WebAssembly eventually is the concept of like garbage collection primitives. So we could say, you know, hey, this is an object that needs to be garbage collected. Okay, this object object is now garbage. For instance, like as two of the two of the you know small operations involved with that, what this would let us do is to uh, make it so not only do we allow you know much more dynamic languages into WebAssembly, but also they could show up and not have to bring their own garbage collection with them because each of the WebAssembly runtimes would be required to implement their own garbage collection and make it as efficient as possible. That's, I think, one thing that, like, when we get to that, I think we'll see so many more languages come on to WebAssembly. I, I'm really looking forward to that one, personally. You were talking about the benchmarking process oh, yeah. for for understanding the, the state of WebAssembly. Tell me more about that benchmarking, and I think you said that the the benchmark is, is is how fast WebAssembly code runs relative to to native code. Yeah, that's how that's how we benchmark ourselves anyway. That's not how everyone does it. Um, you, know, you know, if you're running in a browser, that might not be the best benchmark for you. You might be comparing it. And, and so, th- by the way, that's that's like native x86. Oh yeah, assembly Absolutely. code. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that we typically do that is that we will take a C program or a Rust program or you know whatever we would like with that. And we'll compile it with a normal compiler. You know, maybe it's Clang, turn on optimizations and produce native code with it. Um, and then we will run, take the same code, compile it to WebAssembly, and then compile that with Lucid, and then run that and just compare them directly. And so we, we have... Sorry to interrupt you. I should define this earlier. What, what is Lucid? Oh, ah, yeah, sorry. So Lucid is the open source compiler and runtime for WebAssembly that, uh, that we at Fastly have developed and open sourced uh, earlier this year. Okay. So we will... We take the native code that we have compiled and we take the code that was compiled to WebAssembly and then compiled with Lucid to native code that way and then just compare the execution time of each of them. And so there's some things that in WebAssembly are, are kind of fundamentally 
always going to be a little bit slower, uh, at least until we can find clever ways to optimize them. One of those is uh, things as simple as like function pointers, which can affect like dynamic dispatch within languages. Those are always going to be a little bit slower because they need to be type checked before we will allow you to call them. Likewise, certain types of memory accesses are always going to be a little bit slower. And a lot of that really comes down to, um, you know, just the safety guarantees that WebAssembly provides for us. And we, I guess we consider those to be worth it, but, uh, but you know, in regardless of those two things, we're still at this point getting like, you know, within spitting distance of, of like the native code speeds as well, which I think is like a pretty impressive thing. Yeah. When you look at those benchmarks, how extrapolable are they? Like, can you look at the benchmarks and say, okay, uh, based on these benchmarks, the entire web is going to, is like almost, you know, as fast as, you know, native assembly code or, or do you, or do you feel it just is covering some characteristic set of, of functionality? Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's actually like terribly extrapolable. Each of these benchmarks will typically cover like some, you know, they're, they're kind of a, worst case scenarios for specific types of code. So for instance, like we, we have some benchmarks that just, you know, just do random memory access in totally random patterns, for instance, or well, seemingly random patterns, uh, which is not a thing that you would typically see in like a normal program. Likewise, we have some that just do like tons of floating point math which, you know, that's not the typical behavior of like a, a web application or something else, right? But what they do is like they, they let us exercise each of those individual like kind of little subsystems within it um, to make sure that each of those are getting faster. And then over time, I think when we get more and more experience with how people are actually using WebAssembly, uh, we'll be able to develop more and more actually, you know, representative uh, ways of benchmarking all the different types of programs that we're, that we're running. We talked about this a little bit last time, but tell me how WebAssembly fits into your work as CTO of Fastly. Yeah, so from my perspective, um, WebAssembly is is clearly the right way for edge computing to go in the future. I think we're still early days with that, you know, especially as like the the number of languages are is slowly growing. The number of languages that one can uh, use to compile to WebAssembly is slowly growing, but the guarantees that it provides. And the, the ability to run at near native speeds and to use a minimal amount of memory and to provide the safety to be able to provide um, multi-tenant support, even in the face of, you know, tens of thousands of requests per second, like there's nothing else out there that allows us to do that. And so from my perspective, you know, the way that Fastly is clearly going is, you know, we, we've always said that, you know, we are an edge cloud of sorts and. The initial way that that manifested itself was was as you know a, an extremely configurable CDN, right? Like we allowed you to do some some small level of edge computing, like since our very earliest days. But our goal has always been to make it possible to do more and more at the edge, to move more and more of your applications away from some central server somewhere out toward where your users actually are. And so, from my perspective, WebAssembly is like really the the clear path forward to allowing people to do more and more computation and do more and more more complex logic close to their users 
yeah, I, I just think it's the only way forward at this point. What's the hardest engineering problem you've worked on within Fastly in the last year? WebAssembly. <laughs> I'm sure WebAssembly is hard. I bet, but I bet that's like more on like the fun. <laughs> it's like the fun kind of hard. I can't take credit for for this one myself. This was actually like more importantly, some folks on my team. They uh, one of the hardest problems we've been working on lately is adding debug support into the Lucid compiler and runtime. So the de- the way that debugging works. Um, when you're using like GDB or like a like an actual debugger, is that it uses this thing called Dwarf. Now, Dwarf is one of those formats that most programmers don't really ever have to think about. They see, okay, cool, my my native code has Dwarf symbols built into it. What does that mean? Well, I, I always like I had never really had to dig into this before, and so I had always assumed it was just you know it's like a source map, right? It just maps like you know this these instructions map to this line in my source code, and you know so if I uh, if I pull up the debugger, I can, you know, that that's how it, you know, knows which, you know, what my backtrace should look like. Turns out that that's not the case at all. The way that Dwarf actually works is that it's its own language. It's its own stack-based language that is embedded into your other program to uh, to allow it to figure out, you know, how how to generate backtraces and and how to debug your code. And so we've been trying to add support for this to Lucid. And it is just, it, it is nightmarishly complex and so poorly documented. And it's one of those, it's, this is one of those formats that was created quite a long time ago. And it's like almost, almost mythical at this point. So I, I have to give like a, a huge shout out to our team working on Lucid here uh, at Fastly, who's managed to like, you know, dig their way through all of these, uh, all these, these legends and figure out how it actually works under the hood. And so that, that should be rolling out pretty soon. If you're, uh, if you're using Lucid as an open source project, we should have debug support in there pretty, pretty soon. You know, I was going to ask about that, about how, uh, how hard it is to debug in WebAssembly these days. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, can you, can you, shed, I, I know we're almost out of time. Can you shed any more light on the debugging experience for a WebAssembly developer? Yeah. So I guess the, the short answer is that it's getting better. <laughs> it's still not it's still not great yet, um, but it's so much better than it was about a year ago. The way that we were um, debugging our WebAssembly programs that we were compiling uh, back then was basically like pulling up the WebAssembly source and looking at like the native assembly instructions and trying to map them back and forth and figure out what they actually referred to in a higher level language. It was it was really rough. But uh, so uh, thanks to the work of some folks at Mozilla, there is now a let's see, I believe it's a draft standard at this point um, for adding uh, special debug sections into WebAssembly programs. And I believe that um, a couple of browsers can actually interpret those now. And Lucid knows how to interpret those now as well um, to be able to provide a like a much more reasonable debugging experience to users. So ultimately what we're trying to do is, you know, account for the fact that, you know, ultimately like it's executing native code. And if you want to figure out what that native code looked like in its original source language, you actually have to map that back through the WebAssembly code as well. Um, and so trying to create that like that mapping through WebAssembly has, has taken some time, but, but we're getting there. Okay. Well, Tyler, thank you for making the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Hey, I really appreciate the time. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Mm-hmm.